you are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Small and white, clean and bright. This episode is brought to you by Edelweiss. Blossom of snow, may you bloom and grow forever. Everybody, thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. I'm the host of the show, and my name is Steve. And Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the podcast to share with us all about a plant that is meaningful to them. And then I share with a guest about a plant that is meaningful to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Before we meet our guest today, I want to talk a little bit about essential oils. I talk about this later in the show, and I I was thinking, like, what what are essential oils? Why do plants make them? And I guess the answer might be obvious, but just to clarify here, essential oils are are compounds that plants generate for a number of purposes. They they use them to attract pollinators. That makes sense. They use them to dissuade pests, which is also interesting. They can use them to prevent or ward off disease— one thing we talked about on the show in the past is allopathy, when a plant makes the soil uh, incompatible to other plants around it. Those are also essential oils. And there's a number of other reasons. So it's it's they're generally part of a plant's reproductive system, part of their immune system, and just really amazing chemicals that plants create. And that reminds me of a subsection of chemistry called natural product chemistry. And this is the idea that, that plants are actually these little factories creating really cool compounds, really novel compounds, compounds that'd be really hard for a human to come up on their own. And so there's a whole class of chemists who look to plants for interesting chemicals, they isolate them, and then they figure out how they can make them, you know, in the lab, which is pretty interesting because, yeah, there's so many chemicals out there. And if you were just trying to do it in the lab without any help from plants, I think it'd be really hard. So a lot of really interesting uh, compounds that we use every day have their origin in plants. So that is pretty cool. And with that, let's meet our guest. Better living through chemistry. Hi, Karen. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. Do you have a plant to share with us today? Yes, I do. I have a, a plant that's near and dear to my heart. It's uh, Daphne um, Oreo Marginata. Daphne Oreo Marginata. I have no idea about this one. <laughs> well, let me look. I've up heard the of Daphne's name. before. I think. I, I think, right? Uh huh. Da- Daphne's, um, but I don't even know what they look like. Uh, they are shrubs. They're low shrubs. Um, really, uh, I mean, I should have said Daphne Odora. Oreo marginata, because that is the uh, genus and exact species of what we're talking about here. I don't, because I'm, I'm, this sounds like a, a brag, but it's not. I don't <laughs> know my common names as well as I do my botanical names because I was a professional, am a professional gardener. So, um, well, I when we get to my they... plant, I'm going to challenge you with a, with a scientific name first. There we go. Ooh, I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna put yeah. your money where your mouth is there. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, I don't know everything, but okay, yeah. it's fine. It's um, fine. I like I like to throw curveballs to the to the guests sometimes. So we'll see. We'll see. How no, goes. no, that's fine. Um, so I think it's just Daphne. Actually, oh here I'm yeah. looking it up. It's variegated winter Daphne. I see. Um, I just looked it up. So Daphne odora is the genus and species, and Oreo marginata yeah. is the, uh, the cultivar. Cultivar name. name. Yes. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. It's pretty. But it's a very Yes, isn't it? And the variegated part is kind of the key in the common name, variegated winter Daphne, because it's a really beautiful, um, it's it's evergreen, I would say, in um, zones, what, maybe seven or higher, maybe eight Mm. or higher, and then it'll lose its leaves in lower zones, Mm. um, like, you know, five, six. But um, it's evergreen uh, where where I am, which is in the Pacific Northwest, and um, in March... Uh, it depends on the, how the weather is, but it, it, in early spring, it blooms. And so it's blooming before just about everything else. Oh, wow. Maybe it's, it might go like forsythias and, uh, maybe camellias and then Daphne's. Mm. Um, I might not have that exact order, but you know, like it's right around that time, the earliest blooming shrubs. And the coolest thing about it is, um, it is so fragrant that Ah. it'll knock your socks off. I mean, it's strong. Um, and, uh, well, one of the reasons, okay, so, so it's, it's just a stellar plant just all, all around. But one of the reasons it's special to me is because when I was in horticulture school, now this is, <laughs> this is going way back, like, you know, um, several years here. But um, I was... Um, in class one day. And at that time, my husband was sick. Um, Mm. He had cancer, he had colon cancer. Mm. And he had stage four colon cancer. Wow. And, um, and by the way, he's fine. And um, yeah, he's been fine for like, uh, over two decades now. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's amazing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's, I mean, God, wow, that's really amazing. Yes, it was very intense. And we never thought he was sick. He was he was seriously sick because we were in our thirties at the time and we thought we never thought he was sick, you know, like Mm -hmm. in that serious way. So like we just kind of went on without him really ever, like he didn't address his illness for a while because we didn't ever think he had cancer. So anyway, he, so he had to go under, you know, undergo some serious chemotherapy treatment. He ended up having two surgeries, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. I was already in horticulture school and I, um, almost dropped out because Mm. it was so intense. But the good thing was horticulture school at that time was very, um, it was the only place I could go where I could be myself, just, just me as myself without thinking about what was going on with us and my Mm. husband, like everything, you know, my life was, of course, you know, I was overwhelmed by being a caretaker for him, I was overwhelmed by, you know, the idea of losing him. You know, it was just crazy intense. But when I went to horticulture school, it was a time where I could set that all aside and just like focus on the little things like, like identifying plants. And so I was in class, I was in a plant identification class one day. And I was looking, we had just stopped, we were at the um, zoo, we were at the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle. Um, just looking at the grounds because we would go out in the field and study plants and, you know, you would take notes and um, talk about them. So we had just studied this Daphne 
and you know it smelled so great and oh okay now i'm gonna try and <laughs> i'm gonna try and sell this part without getting choked up but this woman came up to me who is a fellow classmate and she was like hey um i heard what's going on with your husband and i just want to tell you that i can't believe how brave you are and i can't believe you're doing what you're doing <sighs> so i lost it <laughs> mm -hmm. to, to like to to say the least like when she said that she was so like blunt she just like came up to me and said i heard your husband's sick i feel awful about it and i want you to know that um you know like i think it's what i just said and mm -hmm. and so she said and if you need anything i really want to help you and for her to tell me that she thought i was brave i just i i it was the last thing I felt like because I was scared, you know, I was yeah. scared out of my wits at the time. And so I just started like crying, like right there. I didn't even know this person. Right. I mean, I like knew her as a classmate, her name was yeah. Angela. So I knew her as a classmate, but I didn't know her at all. So then I'm starting to cry and then she starts to cry and we start holding hands and we're standing there and the whole group went on you know to the next plant without us and um yeah i was trying to speak back to her but i was so chucked up choked up and i was saying no i'm not really that brave you know i like i was just i just like lost it and i unloaded on all i'd been feeling you know yeah and she was like totally there for me and it was just amazing and i We'll never forget it because, sorry, I'm getting choked up. My voice. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> but I will never forget it because the Daphne smelled so sweet and fragrant and strong. You know what I mean? How you have a sensory memory, like, you know, with yeah. a scent. Yeah. So what ended up happening is she and I ended up chatting. Then we continued on, kind of, we hung back from the class. We went, I remember we went in the aviary and like, you know how, like after you weep, you're just sort of like, you feel kind of at peace and rest. Mm -hmm. We went in the aviary and it was so beautiful because the birds were like swooping around and our class had, like I said, gone ahead and it was very quiet. And it was such a special sort of, whatever it was, 20 minutes, you know, that, um, I just don't think, I mean, I haven't ever forgotten that memory. And that woman, um, Angela, is like one of my best friends now. Wow. So <laughs> she and I ended up um, partners in horticulture crime because <laughs> after we both got our certificates, she became a container designer and I became a garden designer. And we helped each other on each, on each other's um, jobs from time to time. And we helped each other on each other's gardens. So she would come over and, and we still do this, but sometimes it's a little bit harder nowadays to find the time. But we both go over to each other's yards and help each other work on our yards um, because we each have this idea that we're going to have dream gardens or something, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, we're fooling ourselves, but we keep trying. So um, ever since then, we have... Um, been like thick as thieves and and super close and done all kinds of crazy things like move boulders and dig out 15 foot shrubs and <laughs> do all kinds of silly things so anyway so my emotional connection to daphne is um what from the birth of that friendship very wow that is just a, an amazing story and i think i mean we I, 
doing this podcast for such a long time now, it, it's always surprising how how strong people can have connections to plants and like a, an, a, an emotional connection. But that was a really great example. So I have, I have a few questions. One, when you smell that Daphne now, does it bring you back to that? And is it like, wh- what is it like when you smell that particular Daphne now? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I've grown probably three or four different uh, cultivars of Daphne. Mm-hmm. And it's now... Now it's just um, a fragrance I love, but it, it does no, it do, it's not. I guess because Angela and I have so many new memories that it doesn't really trigger me back to that particular moment. But mm. I will say that it always makes me viscerally happy. Yeah. Wow. And and just I think that there's a real positive emotion connected to that smell for me. Wow, that's really amazing. Uh, the other thing I think that you said that I, I really keyed into that it's, I think, probably really heartening for the audience is that uh, two experts in horticulture still don't have dream gardens, and that's probably okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I think we all have, like, our, like, uh, insecurities about our gardens, and, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say we're both really close now, but it's <laughs> been, like, you know, what, like, a long time, like, almost two decades. So, you know, like, it's it's we're almost there, but yeah. But, and also too, things die or you have a harsh winter and you have to make adjustments and whatnot. So it's a constant work in progress. Even if you do finish your dream garden, you're going to have to edit it, you know, from year to year and make little changes and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Um, so well, what, what a really beautiful story and thanks for sharing that. Um, let's transition maybe to a little bit more about the plant. Like I said, yeah. I don't really know much about Daphne's at all at all. What what's the deal with them? What are some fun yeah. facts and dazzling details about this plant? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, they're so great. They're a low shrub. They they usually don't grow much past four feet, so um, they're a good shrub to be not at the front of the border, but sort of maybe secondary, right behind some perennials. Um, they uh, are woody, and um, they have sort of whorls of green leaves or in the case of this variegated one that I love, uh, it's green leaves with yellow margins. Mm. Um, and then and the, variegated, that the, word variegated, I kind of understand what it means. It essentially means like some, some different coloration on the leaves or something like yes. that. Okay. Right. Yes. And, uh, like yellow and green, white and green, uh, in terms of hostas, it could be blue, lime yellow and green you know Uh it could be multicolors variegated meaning the the foliage is variegated in its color um cool thanks for uh, clarifying that because i've i just know that something you hear about houseplants i know it had to do with different colors i know that the houseplant people are like you know the variegated ones are the ones that people really get into um yes um Yeah. yeah and 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 sort of a fun fact is variegation happens from a plant having a virus that becomes mm. stable Whoa. and then they're able to reproduce it with that. I, 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 maybe there might be argument about how harmful it is. Probably not, but by that, that variegation becomes stable and then they're able to reproduce it. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if that's for all plants, but I know that that's for many. Um, yeah, yeah, is, is yeah. that how, that's where it stems from. Oh yeah. I but, think I remember um, reading something about, uh, was it tulips? I think in the Michael, Michael Pollan book, 
Uh-huh. Um, uh, Botany of Desire, he's talking about yeah. the tulip trade in, in Amsterdam. And I think how they got all those different, maybe this isn't variegation, but all the different like intense patterns of the colors of the tulips, I think had to do mm-hmm. with some kind of virus thing. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. audience, maybe. Google it. I have no, <laughs> I'm not a, if we're not exactly right on, on that stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not a, yeah. Yeah. But fascinating. Yeah. Something to look yeah. into. Yeah. So, um, so, um, and there's, you know, several, uh, you know, varieties. There's, there's, um, it's, there's, uh, sorry, the, the variegated winter Daphne, which is the one I'm talking about, uh, is very pretty. You know, it's deep green leaves with yellow, uh, edges, um, yellow on the margins. And, um, that, um, has little white star-like flowers with a pink blush. It's so delicate and so pretty. It looks, if you look at it really, really closely, it almost looks tropical, like a plumeria or something. And um, they're, they, they, they bloom in little clusters of these white flowers. And the plant is off, if it's happy, it's often covered in them. So, oh, that's another great thing about Daphne's is for, in terms of fragrant shrubs, because they bloom in winter, you're often, not really in winter, in early spring, I should say, you're often caught off guard. Like all of a sudden you walk in, you're walking maybe from your car to your house and you go, whoa, what is that smell? Holy cow. What? Is, oh, the Daphne's blooming. You know what I mean? Cool. Like, yeah, that's cool. Because it happens in a time of year that you're not really thinking about plants blooming and fragrance and any of that. Yeah, because so a lot of those early bloomers actually aren't super fragrant, right? Some of the ones that look pretty, like forsythia, for example. We got a lot of forsythia. Right. And right. that pops really bright, you know, but it 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 uh, it doesn't really have a smell, right. at least not from a distance. Right, right, yeah. yeah. And so you're you're not really prepared for it, you know. Yeah. And so um, what, as a designer, what I always recommend clients do is plant your Daphne's somewhere where you walk almost every day. So, in other words, if the conditions are right, plant it by your driveway. I have one by my drive. I have two actually by my driveway, one on either side and, um, or planted by your front door. Um, you could plant, even plant it in containers by your front door, plant it somewhere where you will walk every day. So when you, so you can enjoy it every day, you know, and so you can get just a moment of fragrance in the, whatever, in the few minutes, you know, that it takes you to walk from your car and go into your house. So, um, so anyway, there's the variegated Daphne. There's another one called Carol Mackey. And Carol Mackey is kind of like the grand dame of Daphne's because that's like a, a you know, a British cultivar that was grown in a lot of old, you know, uh, English gardens. And um, Carol Mackey is ha- uh, hardier um, than, say, the variegated mm. Daphne. Carol Mackey is, um, I think, hardy to zone five. Ah. So... If you don't know Daphne's or you live maybe, I don't know what you what Washington, D.C. zone is. But if I'm you technically live in, zone 7 Okay. Yeah. If you live in like zone, like in Chicago or zone 6 or whatnot, Carol Mackey would be good to try because I think it would, it would winter over just fine. Um, you can do extra mulch to keep it, you know, happy. And also it likes really good drainage. Um, so you don't want to put it in any kind of heavy clay soil. Mm. Having said that, um, Daphne's can be, um, sorry, can't be uh, transplanted um, Mm. very easily. 
they get very fussy about that and they will wilt on you and and blame you and look at you <laughs> like very very upset for weeks um they may so what's not die. the way to 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 start them are you starting from seed or are you starting from a cutting or what, what how do you how do you I, get them going no i've never tr- i never tried to grow them grow them from seed or or a cutting for that matter i always bought them from the nursery and when i, I take them out of the pot i barely touch the roots at all and and this goes against what i usually do because when i take plants out of a pot if i'm you know planting for a client or whatnot or myself i always loosen the roots always mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially the more pot bound it is the more i loosen the roots because those That's roots relevant need to spread if, right re- relevant advice for this podcast <laughs> root bound <laughs> <laughs> yeah right exactly root bound so um uh with daphne's i don't do that so with Daphne's, I take it out of the pot like it's a piece of crystal. <laughs> and then I like gently, you know, gently put it in the hole, talk nice to it, you know, tuck it in with some, some uh, you know, rich loamy soil and water it and leave it be. I, I don't mess with the roots. Hmm. Now, having said that, I'm going to contradict myself here. Okay. Because <laughs> there's one cultivar of Daphne and it's called... Daphne Eternal Fragrance. It's a newer, newish cultivar. I love cultivar so... names. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, sometimes they're kind of absurd, but this one is very sure, poetic. Yeah. Eternal, Eternal Fragrance. fragrance. Yes, like exactly. A, yeah. Right. It's like a perfume. Yeah. Um, but it is like a perfume. And yeah. the thing about this Daphne that's different is that it blooms uh, can, it, it, over and over again. I shouldn't say continuously because it may rest for a couple weeks and then bloom again. But mm. usually Daphne's bloom one time, that early time, early springtime of year. Well, eternal fragrance blooms multiple times in the growing season. Wow. Yeah. And it's awesome. And um, it's got bluish leaves um, more than green, which gives it also a cool kind of texture, you know, visually. And the other thing I'm going to say about this, which contradicts what I just said is, I have moved my eternal fragrance probably three or four times, and mm. it's done just fine. Interesting. I know. And Good cultivar. I, and, and, you know, people might get at me and be like, what? You're crazy that, you know, like, because they have a reputation for not transplanting easily. But for some reason, and it's only been the eternal fragrance um, cultivar, not any others. I have been able to transplant that thing. And make it happy. Also, of course, when you transplant, you want to disturb the roots as little as possible. Mm-hmm. And, you you know, like dig out the whole root ball as much as possible and not break any roots. And then have your hole ready to go and not plant it too deep and not plant it too high. And if you can do that, I think you could be successful, at least with eternal fragrance. So, um, so I guess those are some fun facts about Daphne. Super is fun that, facts. Is that... Absolutely. Absolutely. Is that what you're after? What else? For do you want? sure. No, that's amazing. <laughs> a, a couple of other questions. Okay. One thing I'm just having in the back of my mind now because I listened to it on another podcast um, about, I think they're talking about the fact that, that um, you know, they're perennial, but maybe they have a shorter life than some shrubs. Is that, does yes. that, am I remembering that? So you have to like plant them maybe, I don't know. Tell me about that. I, I That stood out to my mind in another podcast. That's like the only thing I have in my mind about Daphne's, but I think you could fill in better. Yeah, that's true. But having said that, I've had Daphne for like, I've had one Daphne probably for like, I don't know, 15 years and mm. it's, it hasn't died. 
Um, so, but I have heard that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've read that, that I have not personally experienced that. I should say that, but I do know that that is a thing about Daphne's is they are shorter lived shrubs. But if they are a short, shorter lived shrub and yours passes away, then that gives you an excuse to go to the nursery and get a new one. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, okay. The other thing, if you, I don't know if you have anything about the name, um, Daphne, isn't that like some Greek thing? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. Let me look that up. I mean, yeah. Daphne is, mm, I so want to say a it's Greek a goddess. Character. Yeah, I think so. Right? Is a, a Greek goddess? Yeah, Let me see real-time here. Googling here, audience. Mm-hmm. Sorry, people. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. Daphne uh, is a tree. It says... Oh, the nymph, Greek- Daphne. Yeah, right. Okay, a tree spirit and daughter of Peneus, the river god. Um, yeah, I, I uh, don't know too much about that, but it looks like... Oh, this makes sense. Daphne is the nymph associated with fountains, wells, springs, streams, brooks and other bodies of fresh water. Ah. So that's what that's about, I guess. And then I'm, um, I'm guessing the odora part probably has to do with the fact that it smells good, I guess. That, that, yep, that's exactly. Guess. Yeah. yeah, you know, the funny thing about Latin botanical, maybe you already know this, but, you know, Latin botanical is just Latin words that sort of mean, a, you know, the word that it is, you know, <laughs> like odora, you know, um, I'm trying to think of other things. Glauca means uh, blue or waxy. Mm. Sorry, waxy. Mm. Um, you know, so they they just are sort of Latin words that are very actually very literal. Yeah. Um, having said that, there are some Latin names too that are named after after um, people like explorers and stuff like that. Yeah, and then they just like throw some weird Latin ending on the end to make it sound more Latin. Yeah. Um, Right. I talk. I've talked a lot about on the show because some of them are so funny because it's like. Um, I, I really like the Latin names and like l- reading about what they're what they mean. And sometimes it's mm-hmm. like, well, why is this plant called this thing? It's like, oh, it's just named after a dude. <laughs> it's some exactly. guy that some guy that Linnaeus liked a lot or something. <laughs> so, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like there in the Northwest, we have a whole I don't know how about a whole suite, but at least two um, plants that are named after Arthur Menzies. So mm. uh, he was a famous like explorer rich dude who went around and the who who kind of helped uh lay do a lot of um labeling of plants and whatnot um in the pacific northwest way back when and so um he uh pseudotsugo menzisii and um arbutus uh um oh sorry yeah arbutus menzisii are both named after arthur menzies and that is uh, the the Douglas fir, which is the oh, classic yeah, okay. tall Northwest tree, and then the Madrona tree, which is the broadleaf classic Northwest tree or West Coast tree, I should say. I, the, so, I yeah. knew I had heard that before somewhere, and then the Douglas it was the Douglas fir. The Madrona is something I was not uh, I was not aware of until relatively recently because of a podcast we both listened to. <laughs> but we uh-huh. we'll go down that rabbit right. hole. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it looks like a really cool tree. Um, I, I want to. If I'm out on that coast at some point, I really want to track it down. Um, any other fun facts yeah. or dazzling details about the Daphne that we we missed? Well, I, I was just going to say this uh, actually about the Madrona tree. Um, mm. The Madrona tree was a, a close second for me in terms of uh, picking my favorite plant. 
because it is such a fascinating tree. It's a broadleaf tree. So it, you know, it has, it's not an evergreen. It doesn't have needles. It has leaves, which are kind of very thick and sort of rubbery, um, but it's evergreen. And then it has this really cool reddish bark that peels. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's such a cool tree. And when you it, see huge stands of them, it looks almost tropical. Like you don't even know what you're looking at. Yeah, you know when I, I mean? looked when I looked it up, and it makes sense, I think, geographically a little bit. Uh, but I didn't know there was as many or a tree like this. But I was I was in New Zealand not too long ago, and a lot of the New uh-huh. Zealand tree it reminded me of some of the trees in New Zealand, and they have a mm. lot of broadleaf evergreen trees there. Like almost uh-huh. all of them are. Um, uh-huh. And so maybe there's some kind of like evolutionary. I don't know. It, it seems like in that classification of tree, because you're right, broadleafed evergreens are pretty few and far between. Yes. Um, so, but yeah, maybe that there's... specific atmosphere that is similar in New Zealand and in the Washington area kind of lends to that somehow. Yeah, like coastal, uh, kind of warm, warmish coastal, rainy areas. I would yeah. think. Although, having said that. Uh, madrona trees do not really like too much wet. Um, they tend to rot in the northwest. They like oh, it hotter. They like to oh, they're a little further south than. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they like they're more. You see big forests of them, like in northern California, southern Oregon, kind of mm-hmm. like around mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but yeah, you're right. Broadleaf trees are not common. I mean, like you have magnolias, uh, mm-hmm. you have uh, laurels. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not very many. Like, yeah. But yeah, big broadleaf evergreens. It's a, it, I was I was um, I was talking about that on a podcast not too long ago. Of of because you know, there's uh, there's these different there's three words that separate trees that that kind of end up putting them into just two groups. But there's this weird overlap, and that's evergreen versus deciduous, broadleaf mm-hmm. versus conifer, and hardwood mm-hmm. versus softwood. Mm-hmm. But but they they're not exactly. Uh, two different groups. They, each one of those right. definitions kind of has this interesting uh, blending, which is which is interesting. Right. Like, yeah. for instance, the Douglas fir, like you said, is a conifer. Uh, it has needles, but it's a softwood tree. Yeah. Well, most evergreens are softwoods. Mm, but what about um, cedars? Cedars are also a softwood, technically. T- so... Oh, that's all their whole rabbit hole. Okay, softwood has something to more me. to softwood has more to do with. I'm blanking on this now. I said in the intro of an episode a while back, uh, it has something to do with the uh, cellular structure more than the um, actual the hardness. Actual, uh, so the cedar okay. is very hard, okay. way harder than some hardwoods, but it's still Got technically it. a softwood. And and on the other side of it, balsa is technically still a hardwood, even though it's one of the softest woods known. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. well there, there you go. Anyway, Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I that's uh, I, I love I love uh, going on tangents. So that was a fun tree tangent uh, on, on this episode <laughs> yeah, about <sorry>. Daphne's. It's <laughs> it's totally fine. I love it. Um, but yeah, on the Daphne's, um, anything we missed? Anything the audience needs to know about Daphne's before we? They like uh, part sun. The ideal conditions are like sun, maybe against an east wall of a house or east part of a border, where they get morning sun. And then they're kind of shaded for the hot sun. I have one that's on the western side of my house, but the way the sun goes, it's uh, hidden behind trees for a good part of the day. So it'll get a blast of hot sun for just like maybe a couple hours and that's it. So they only like some sun, but they don't want to ultimately like roast in the sun. You know, they want to be protected from a harsh afternoon sun. 
But having said that, you can experiment and see how it goes. You know, I always encourage clients to say, like, well, try it, <laughs> you know. Daphne was another of those independent, love and marriage-hating young huntresses who are met with so often in the mythological stories. Well, thank you for sharing about uh, winter, variegated winter Daphne with me. Uh, do you yes. mind if I share a plant with you? I, I would love to hear it. All right, here we come with the scientific name here to see to see okay. if I now now it's a little bit not fair because first of all, let's even people who are experts don't know all these. Um, this one's also a pretty weird word, and also I didn't do this on purpose, but I happened to pick a plant, uh, a genus that there are uh, twenty species, all native to North America, but only one that is west of the Rockies. Uh, so. Oh. Okay. So, you know, you may have seen, I don't know about the, the one that is West Rockies. Maybe you know it or maybe, but if you don't have as much exper experience with any, I don't know what your experience with East Coast plants is versus the West Coast. Um, I don't know, maybe people mm. are planting this plant too in gardens because it is, it is a very popular garden plant, at least out mm -hmm. here. And there's a lot of people talking about it is used in gardens. So I'll say the name now. I'll, I'll get cut to it and I'll <laughs> see if you know what it is. It is, now also the pronunciation is tough, but it's either... <laughs> Pycnanthemum muticum or Pycnanthemum muticum? Mm, no, I do not know that. I didn't. That I, didn't I didn't know that to, until this the other day when I was looking it up. I know it by its common name, which is mountain mint. Mountain mint. You familiar with mountain mint? No, I don't think I am. It's a really cool plant. Go ahead. It's it's a is it a shrub or what is perennial? It is a is annual. I mean, sorry, it's a perennial. Um, but it's not a shrub. It grows. I forget the the form you call that. It kind of ends up growing in small stalks from mm. the ground. It gets maybe maximum three feet high, but kind of they 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 kind of grow in. They look like single plants, even though the root structure is a a, a larger perennial structure under the ground. Um, but it's, so it, it's yeah, uh -huh. it's a little bit like mints or other mints where like they have kind of single stalks, right? That that grow, but in like clusters. Uh huh. So it's it's got runners under the ground, and that's how it it grows. That's very exactly. mint like. Yeah. It is, and it is in the Lamiaceae uh, family, uh -huh. right? It's the same family as mint, but it's a different genus, and it's a genus native to North America. Um, and there's about twenty of them. The specific one I'm talking about is the one I'm growing in my backyard, which is called. Uh, the Pycnanthium muticum, or sometimes I think br uh, uh, br broadleafed or clustered mountain mint. Okay, um, hold on. I'm going to look this up. Can I look, look it up it. now? Yeah, please, please yeah. do. Yeah. It's it's really yeah. interesting. It doesn't look like mint at all. It's called mountain mint because it smells like mint and has a very strong flavor of mint, but the leaves are not, not super minty. Right. So, okay, I, I guess I would say Pycnanthium. Pycnanthemum, yeah. And so that name I means so. pike. Pike pike is from pikos in the Greek, which means uh, dense. And then uh -huh. anthemum is for anther, so flower. So it has dense flower clusters. And if you're looking at the mm -hmm. pictures, the flower heads are super dense. They almost look like a compound flower, like, mm -hmm. like they would be in the aster family, but they're not. They're like individual flowers packed super tightly. They kind of mm -hmm. almost look like little, little buttons, um, which is, which uh -huh. is interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's right. The family is Lamiaceae. So okay, yes. yeah, that's that's. Uh, and there is yeah, one definitely a, a mint. Yeah. And there is a Pycnanthemum californicum, which is the only one that occurs 
um, okay. west of the Rockies. The rest. Oh yeah, and, I see this. Yeah, they're all native to like the uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, yes. uh, Appalachia. Looks like Virginia. Yeah, and apparently um, North Carolina, the Wikipedia says the center yeah. of diversity is North Carolina, and 13 of the 20 species are found in North Carolina. Hmm. So it's a really cool plant. Have it you smells grown amazing. it? Yes, I have, I have in my backyard. Uh, when we uh-huh. bought this house a number of years ago, um, I was trying to decide what plants I want to grow, and there's a pretty cool place that's uh, in Virginia called Edible Landscaping. I'm, I'm getting a little bit... I'm growing a little bit beyond this, but for a long time, I just wanted to grow only plants I could eat in some way. I uh-huh. was like really obsessed with that of like having, and I still pretty obsessed with that, but I'm starting to be like, no, what plants have other needs for other purposes, for beauty, for smells, for wildlife, stuff like that. I just, I don't have to eat it all, but mm-hmm. I was looking through, um, both, um, uh, both the Southern exposure seed exchange and then this edible landscaping for what kind of interesting, plants I could grow and basically some of them like were more well known but some of them were like that's something I've never heard of let me try it and I read that there was this thing called mint mountain mint it's a native plant whereas you know the regular mint which is a mint peperita mintha peperita right is is a European and Asian plant so I was like well that's cool it's a native plant it'll be great for pollinators and also I can make tea with it yeah so let me try it um yeah and uh I, I will say that I I wish I have been using it more for tea. I, I end up like not drinking as much tea as I should, but it is a really good mint tea. It it's got a very strong minty flavor. The smells really really good. Um, hmm. You can use the flow the flowers or the or the leaves for the tea. Um, uh, it's so it's really good. It it's growing in a back corner of my yard. It's kind of interspersed now with some. Um, uh, mugwort which is something i didn't plant on purpose but they kind of grow well together um over there uh-huh. which, which is a plant i haven't talked about in the podcast yet but it's an, also an interesting plant um but let's let's talk some stuff about this on the tea it is really good mint tea however just word of warning to the audience uh there is indication that you shouldn't drink it when you're pregnant so okay. just so so that you know there's some things like that um there is some indication that some of the varieties are higher in a chemical called Pulagone, which is the main thing in pinaroil, which makes pinaroil um, essential oil essentially toxic. Like pinaroil tea is okay, oh. but like pinaroil essential oil is almost is can be almost all this chemical called pulagone, which is toxic. But as we say on this podcast all the time, quoting the famous Swiss alchemist Paracelsus, the dose makes the poison, and things that can be toxic if you take an essential oil, are not toxic in a tea. So from my understanding, and I've drank in the tea before and I'm fine, you're okay. But there is, uh, you know, a warning to uh, women who may be, uh, maybe are maybe pregnant. So just, I like to make sure that's clear out there. Um, but other than that, it's a very nice mint tea. There's lots of traditional use in, there's not a ton of like really hardcore documentation at it, but it's understood that it has lots of use as a, I think, a diaphoretic, which means to help with cough, help with fever, all those things that teas do, I think, as far as like mm-hmm. how people use them. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great tea. It smells wonderful. I was just I just made some today. I meant to have a cup when I was up here, but I was boiling it um, with a leaf, and the whole house just smelled amazing because of this mint, mm-hmm. this mint smell. And it's 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 a little bit. I have to say, it's a bit it's a bit more musky in its mint smell than. Mm-hmm the mint that we know because it's more a bit more wild i feel like the mint we know has been 
mm-hmm. has been bred into a bit more simple uh, mint over the years. So this one is definitely like a a, a, a wild plant. Uh, and can so if it's if the oil has mm, so. I'm thinking, can you make mojitos with it? Probably you not. You could. Right? Yeah, I think you could because you know you? Uh, this pulagon is also in mint. By the way, it's it, it's in any. It's one of the things that makes okay. something minty. It's just okay. the level of it is okay. slightly. The, apparently, from what I understand, the highest plant that has this is pinaroyal. But people still drink pinaroyal tea. But also the same the same uh, warning for for pregnant women goes to pinaroyal tea as well. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's the it's but you know if you if you. Uh, um, concentrate the oil. It's just like if you if you just took pure caffeine, right? Like a cup of mm-hmm. coffee is fine, but if you take if you take a yeah. shot of pure caffeine, right? That's it's just the manner of level. So um, I think you could make a mojito. It probably make a really great mojito. I should try that. I I gotta use this plant more. I think is the the, the purpose of talking about in this episode is I've made tea with it, but I haven't really mm-hmm. like explored the depths of how it can be used because. Um, but it is really cool. Well, that's, I mean, I was wondering about mojitos in particular because, you know, when you use that, when you use that mint in a mojito, you're grinding it. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you're releasing those oils. And so that's why I was kind of wondering if it was something that you could still do with this. I think mint. it would be small enough, right? It's, it's all about the amounts. I, I went down this, I went, I'm not even, I'm not going to get into it too much, but I went down a whole rabbit hole because I, Basically, I was reading one article that was about the essential oils, and they were saying the essential oil from the one I have shouldn't be consumed, where the essential oil from a few other species of mountain mint are okay. And I was like, oh, crap, I'm, I have one that's bad. But then I was like, but people sell it for tea all the time. And then I was confusing. I was confusing, and I think it's a common thing that people make all the time. I was confusing the essential oil with the plant. And the, mm-hmm. the percentage of the compounds in the plant yeah. are way, 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 way lower than yeah. if you had the essential oil. So... Um, right. It's right. very distilled down in a really potent form, right? Right. For the oil. Right. And mm-hmm. so even though this one has a bit higher, you know, it, it's true, it's still in any kind of way that you would be using it in a few leaves here and there. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally fine. That same thing, as what's the other plants? We talked about the same thing with sassafras. You know, sassafras, I think, is still technically illegal uh, mm. to use federally because of saffron, which is similar um, but uh, as there's a, a really great um, uh, Instagram personality, she goes by Black Forger. She wrote a song about sassafras. And she says, you'd have to eat like a whole tree of sassafras for, uh, <laughs> and you're not going to eat a whole tree, are you? So it's, it's, you know, it's the same, it's the same thing. But well, yeah, I went, yeah, that, whole, <laughs> I went down this whole rabbit hole look, looking up uh, um, European uh, guidelines for medicinal use where they were talking about what the actual toxicity level of, of milligrams uh-huh. per kilogram of body weight of, of polygon. And then I realized, no, anytime you're, if you're not drink if it's not the oil, yeah. you're probably fine. Like don't drink 30 cups a day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, yeah, well that just reminded me of um, cinnamon and, you know, mm. cinnamon is a bark that is, you know, fine to eat in cookies or whatever and um actually would kill you if you ate a whole like cinnamon stick <laughs> yeah totally i forget about the name of the compound in that or I, poison I, you seriously i guess yeah I yeah there's a specific I, i'm blanking it's there's just i did a cinnamon episode uh, a little while ago and i oh neat about that. yeah yeah um that's yeah so it's i think the like I said, the 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 I think it almost is becoming the motto for the show, which is the dose makes the poison. This idea yeah. that anything is poisonous if you have too much of it, it's just 
determining what too much is. And in some things, a little bit is too much. In some things, a, a lot of it is too much. But uh, I did yeah. really have this moment of like, crap, the, the variety I have is really high in this thing. Does that mean it's bad? <laughs> but then I was like, but, but I bought it from Edible Landscaping. They sell things for Edible. Like, <laughs> I, I kind of spiraled for a second. And then I was like, oh, wait yeah. a minute. They're talking about the essential oil and so many things like that where something is toxic but it's because you're talking about the the concentrated form, and so that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. So do you? Uh, um, so do you um, uh, grow mostly stuff that's like edible and uh, you know has some sort of or and or has some sort of medicinal uses? What what's your Mo- what's most, your angle on gardening? What what do you like? Mostly to grow? edible. I'm not the medicinal thing is not. I I you know I feel like I don't really have the knowledge to like go down mm-hmm. any medicinal rabbit holes. So it's more for mm-hmm. just its use. I also am really into to trying to plant native plants to this area. And if I if I had way more time and energy, I would try to really transition my whole yard to being only natives because yeah. that would be cool. And like but like, you know, I, I've I've gotten rid of a lot of grass and replaced them with beds. Um mm-hmm. but there's still a lot of grass and the grass is, you know, all that grass is, is like weird invasive species that we brought over for grass and it, getting rid of it is, is a huge challenge. Um, oh, sure. But yeah, I like, I like the native, I like, I, partic- I particularly like the native plants that are abundant that I feel like most people have no idea about. Mountain mint's a great one. It's like a mint. It, it grows really wild everywhere in the, in the forest around here. And most people haven't heard about it. I talked about it, I think, in the last episode about um, Passiflora incarnata, the native passion fruit, which grows mm-hmm. in this region, right? It's a hardy northern passion fruit that mm-hmm. I see all the time now because I know it. But most people are like, there's a passion fruit that grows here. Mm-hmm. I've talked, mm-hmm. I, I, I really, I think another example of thick plants I like is uh, uh, the sunchoke, or also known as Jerusalem artichoke, which is a native uh, f- sunflower that has an edible tuber which is super, super abundant, but most Ooh. people don't know about it. Um, mm-hmm. I could go on and on, but that's, that's my, that's what I like. I like those plants yeah. that are, that are, that are uh, native, but people kind of have like, are not paying attention to them for whatever reason, but uh-huh. have really cool value. And this is mm-hmm. one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I think, do I have any more things about mountain mint? I think, The only other thing I have is that, okay, two things. It's really, really great for uh, native pollinators, which is something we really got to be aware of uh, in the modern Mm -hmm. day so much. Um, I was just talking with a guest a while back about how, you know, we have tons of invasive species here. I think the Pacific Northwest has a lot of issues with invasives as well. And one of the main issues with invasives is that the native insects do not consume them. And so it's, Mm -hmm. it's a bad for both the plants, but also the bugs. So this one is really, I found one study that uh, I think it was in Louisiana that um, they they did a really big assessment of plants and native pollinators. So it was like 20 different plants and a bunch of different bugs. And uh, 68% of the bugs they cataloged were found on mountain mint. So it's, you know, a popular amongst, in, at least in that area, uh, amongst the uh, the bugs. And then the last little thing is, which is kind of funny, well, there, I could go a little bit more. It, it doesn't really grow on mountains. It's called mountain mint, but it doesn't mm-hmm. really grow in the mountains. I think it kind of grows in upland areas. And I was trying to figure out 
if someone hmm. just called a mountain mint because they were near a mountain, but they were lower. The guy who, hmm. who quote-unquote, discovered it, which is never the right term for a plant in this area, but uh, is a guy who's pretty famous. His name is um, Andre Michaud. Okay. And he was he was like a par- one of those guys who like some some king in Europe sent him around the world to just catalog plants. It was like that time when there was a bunch of guys, mm-hmm. probably like this Mincy's guy, similar yeah. similar dude. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he he was one of the ones who found that. But it, there's a lot of other plants that he cataloged, and also he's res- he was also responsible for bringing a lot of European and Asian plants to. North America, and I'm blanking on some of the other ones, but the one that sticks in my brain, because we actually talked about him, I didn't realize, uh, we talked about him a long time ago, because he's the guy who brought the crepe myrtle to the south. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so, uh-huh. uh, anyway, his name is André Michaud, he he named it Mountain Mint, but probably in French, but why, why he decided to call it Mountain Mint and not like Wild Mint or something else is, he found it in Pennsylvania, I guess. Um, it's, mm. it's, it's taxonomic history was pretty confusing, I'm not going to get into that either, but it didn't kind of settle onto the pycnanthemum muticum until a little bit later. Um, but he, he's the guy who is, uh, who's the first to document it, I guess. So this is going to sound like a really dumb question, but are there, it does Appalachia, does, do the Appalachian mountains stretch into Pennsylvania? Um, do they go that far? Uh, the, there's a, the tail end of them, I think is in the, uh-huh. If I'm wrong about this audience, I apologize. There are definitely <laughs> some part of that chain that that kind of like trickles yeah. into like the middle south of Pennsylvania, but they may not well, technically be called the Appalachians then anymore. Oh, okay, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I sorry, just, audience. <laughs> sorry, Appalachians yeah. in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just wondering because I was thinking, well, maybe he was there. That's where he was in Pennsylvania, like somewhere, like at the beginning of the Appalachian Mountains or something like that. And there are some um, mountains there, and maybe he just was, like, I did read that they, they tend to grow on higher areas okay. than other things, but not mountains, right? You think of something grows on a yeah. mountain, you're, like, way up in the mountains. Yeah. So maybe well, you even, can see the mountains yeah. from them, right? You're on a hill, and you can see, you know, I, I don't know. It, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. And I the mean, mint part is clear, though. They're to- it's very minty. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what's a mountain out here in the West compared to what the mountains, like the Blue Ridge Mountains or something, oh, yeah. very different. Like they oh, look yeah. like hills to us. You oh, know, yeah, for sure. They're they're softer and lower in elevation. But yeah. Totally, totally. Oh, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah. No, I don't know much about East Eastern plants. I haven't spent a lot of time really. Um, I was born and raised in Chicago, but I didn't really garden in Chicago. I started gardening mm. when I moved to p- the Pacific Northwest. So I know more about like West Coast, California, and Pacific Northwest plants than I do, um, or even plain states or, or Midwest plants, prairie plants, than I do um, in, in East Coast. In, yeah, that's, that's Coast it's a little bit the opposite for me because I mostly grew up in California, but when I was like younger, I didn't really have much plant awareness. And so my knowledge uh-huh. of like the plants out there... It's when I moved here and, you know, bought a house and started a garden that I really started getting yeah. into it. And so very different. Yeah. Um, I had that uh, realization, you know, it's so different. But even when you're in the same zone, because the climates are so different, right? Like humidity yeah. levels are just so different yes. between those and lots yes. of other things that make what you what you can grow uh, incredibly different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why Sunset Magazine for all those years had their own zones because they mm. they recognize that. There are so many little mini um, climates 
um, yeah. everywhere in the country that it's hard to say. Like my zone eight uh, is not the same as a zone eight would be like maybe, I don't know, like in Texas or something yeah. like that. You know, like totally. the soil is going to totally. be totally different and the sun is going to be at a different angle and the amount of sun hours is going to be different, all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm fascinating yeah. stuff uh, well yeah that's that's all i have to say about mount mint um uh but yeah uh thanks for joining me on this episode of rootbound yeah well that was fun i really appreciate it steve yeah thanks don't want a mint i thought okay mint i gotta have the mint what a fascinating conversation with karen about daphne's and mountain mint and I did a little bit of research, and here's the story of, of, of Daphne. And there's a little bit of an interesting twist here. So just in short, the story of the character Daphne is that uh, essentially at some point, Cupid decided to play a trick on Apollo because he made Apollo mad or something. And so he shot Apollo with an arrow that made him fall in love with Daphne, and then he shot Daphne with an arrow that made her uh, scared of Apollo. And then as she was running away from Apollo, she begged to be saved, and I think the gods turned her into a laurel tree. Not a Daphne, but a laurel tree. So it's pretty interesting that that the... It's pretty interesting that the plant Daphne is not actually a laurel. But I guess Daphne means laurel in Greek, maybe. Um, but essentially, uh, and I found this on a blog called The Wandering Botanist, by Kathy Keeler, she describes that, uh, I guess, Linnaeus is the one who called Daphne the Daphne, and there is a certain uh, plant in the Daphne genus that is called Spurge Laurel in the common name, and it kind of looks like a laurel, and so that's why he named it Daphne, because it has similar characteristics to a laurel, you know, those evergreen broadleafs like a Daphne. So that is, I think, why Daphne is called Daphne and not laurel, convoluted story of namings uh one last thing i want to bring up is that i have noticed that uh in greek mythology a lot of people get turned into plants so here's a short list of characters in greek mythology who were turned into plants and the plants they were turned into so daphne we know was turned into a laurel not a daphne narcissus was turned into a narcissus you know it's like a daffodil-like thing hyacinthus of course was turned into a hyacinth though apparently not the hyacinth we know the description of the hyacinth in greek myth is apparently different Adonis was turned into an anemone flower. Mira was turned into the myrrh tree. Lotus, of course, the lotus tree, but that was probably a persimmon. Dryope was turned into the black poplar. Clytie was turned into a heliotrope. This was actually the first uh, thing called a sunflower, very different from what we call a sunflower. And then Smilax, who was in love with Crocus, they both turned into flowers and plants of those names. There's actually a, a lot more. Um, I don't want to just keep going and going, but it was a very common thing. I guess that's how um, the Greeks decided to uh, to explain the origin of the plants around them in their mythology. So that's super fascinating. And with that, let's end our show. Thank you for listening. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Karen Hugh. Karen is an author and gardener. Her latest book is Leaf Your Troubles Behind, How to Distress and Grow Happiness through plants. You can learn more about Karen and all of her books at her website, which is karenhugg.com. That's H-U-G-G, uh, if you're typing it out. If you like Rootbound and you want to help support the show, visit rootboundpodcast.com slash support to find all the ways you can help support the show, including just telling a friend about it. That'd be great. Rootbound is hosted by a guy who has not been turned into a plant, but that wouldn't be so bad. Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David 
Lonnie. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, allow the scent of a flower to create a strong memory. Edelweiss! Edelweiss! You look happy to meet me!